0: Hello, welcome. I have terrible news. Fred James has been arrested, taken away in the night by the NKVD for wrongthink, for thought crime. And so he's currently in room 101, apparently. I've just got the message this morning. He's getting re-educated to be more patriotic because he, he was... He was thinking awful stuff, so he's now um, he's now currently going through and he's getting made better, double plus good, actually. He's going from uh, being bad to be double plus good, and he's going to be able to speak excellently and uh, say all the right things. As we know, that's what he truly wants. So um, there is this concept inside uh, 1984 where George Orwell says that once you commit thought crime, it's inevitable that you're going to be taken you're going to be arrested because it's it's sort of like a cardinal sin and it seems like that happened to james so who knows he is sick this weekend old jimmy boyo and he, we will not be able to do ion so let's do a little bit in 1984 welcome in hello what's up this is going to be an awesome one this is a fantastic book a scary book an an, um, an anonymous book and somewhat prophetic book as well he um orwell created this book by by taking a large amount of what was going on in the soviet union and in the 1940s it in about 1948 and he he was taking a large amount of what was going on then in those super states like nazi germany like um even in britain itself and then in the soviet union watching the way modern states were organizing themselves and and he, he wrote a parody. This is what this is supposed to be. He did this a lot. He wrote Animal Farm as well. And um, it, it becomes very interesting because his source material was actual stuff going on. And so it proves very prophetic in terms of how states have to manage large populations, especially in a sinister way. It's almost like the dark side of how the system works. And it becomes super scary for that reason because a lot of what you see in this is relative to the Soviet Union, to Nazi Germany, to to the, the wartime English Empire. And it becomes suspicious in the stuff you see. I'm sure all of this stuff goes on, but I'm not supposed to say that because that is a thought crime, as they say. I'm just going to check with everybody, see who's in here. Say hello to the peeps. See who we got. And there we go. Hello, people. Welcome. What's going on? We have Doom, honey. Boom. We have Mr. Castles. Hello, sir. And we have Dean Gardner. What's, go- what's going on, people? What's going on? Welcome in, and uh, I hope you enjoy this. I'll be doing some readings, and I'll rip on through what is going on. But most importantly, and first of all, I want you to all check out the face, the scary, ominous image of Big Brother. Tell me what you think. People on the podcast, you would be shaking in your boots right now if you're seeing this. This is the Big Brother face, as naughty and as bad as it gets. And accompanying with it is a quote from Orwell where he was um, collecting all of this stuff and watching all these patterns. And this is one of his, his, his final quotes coming into the end period of his life. And he said, if you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. So uh, scary stuff there straight away. Jesus Lord. Who does be saying stuff like that? Now, if we are to discuss what? Yes, if we were to discuss how how this breaks down. First of all, I'm gonna say, I was reading a lot of Peter's Russia to get some information on the Soviet Union for that. So that's that's a um, that's a very, very, very good resource. I recommend you check that out. The link is in the description. But to begin us off, I'm actually just gonna read part one. So we're, I'm only really gonna cover part one because there's even a bigger theme in the second half. I might even get James in on that for, for this first part. I'm just going to read you through the the opening two paragraphs because they're quite beautiful. And then we'll go into the religion of 1984 or how this fake religion, this Fox religion shows up. Chapter one. It was a beautiful cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. Winston Smith, his chin nuzzled into his breast in an effort to escape. The vile wind slipped quickly through the glass doors of Victory Mansions though not quickly enough to prevent a swirl of gritty dust from entering along with him. The hallway smelt of boiled cabbage and old rag mats. At one end of a coloured poster, too large for indoor display, had been tacked to the wall. It depicted simply an enormous face, more than a metre wide. The face of a man, about 45, with a heavy black moustache and ruggedy handsome features. Winston made for the stairs. It was no use trying the lift. Even at the best of times, it was seldom working. And at the present, the electric current was cut off during daylight hours. It was part of the economy drive in preparation for hate week. The flat was seven flights up and Winston, who was 39, had a a varicose ulcer ulcer above his right ankle. He went slowly, resting several times along the way. On each landing, opposing the lift shaft, the poster with the enormous face the gazed from the wall. It was one of those pictures which you are so contrived that the eyes follow you about when you move. The caption beneath it ran, Big Brother is watching you. Now, I'm going to rip st- straight straight into the idea of what's going on here, because I find this absolutely fascinating. The core idea in this book and the scariest idea in this book and the the most unsettling notion to us as the pros, you could say, is that the entire problem that these party members and big brother are trying to figure out is how to manage a population. Now, I'll go back into, I'll go later on, I will discuss how this society ended up this way. But for now, let's just go into the way that these people rule the population and what this main character, Winston Smith, what his role is in this. He performs a function where he is taking part in this sort of state religion that they're creating. So a lot of people, for example, criticized the Catholic Church, saying that it was a mind control tool. And that's a very interesting frame to put it, because in some ways, what an institution like the Catholic Church did was take this single way of looking at the world it almost like they became the regulators of the dreams that people had and they said all right this is how we're going to see everything this is how we're going to keep order and collectivize the order we're going to decide on this sort of singular way of looking at this world this dogmatic way of looking at the world and we'll keep everybody at least centered around this and floating around this general thing. So the Catholics weren't no like they were nowhere near as strict as these guys were. They were sort of, shall we say, based. And they were very, very cautious of letting people wander away from that. But the, the core function of that was them thinking, all right, how do we do the mass? How do we educate our priests so that they're telling people the right stuff? And the Catholics obviously got their fingers involved in politics and all the kings, the unification of the church and state. It was almost like they were the it was almost like the Catholics were the CIA of these ancient um these ancient civilizations. And so the religion formed this giant block that worked on the mind of the people to make sure that they all had a consensus among them. Now, there's a huge positive side to this because if everybody's running a different software program, if, if everybody has a different conception of what reality is, well, then there's simply, it's going to be incredibly difficult to get them organized and they're actually very likely to go to war. When ideas go to war, people go to war. So having everybody under a unified um, religious standpoint, this all dreaming the same dream makes it a lot easier for them to unify together, collectivize and establish uh, a, a harmonious empire as to some extent Europe was with Christendom. Now, what happened when all of this fell apart and the, the division of church and state and all of that stuff fell apart in favor of the rise of democracy and the individual and the death of kings, we'll say more like the the destruction of kings came this new problem where people's minds needed to be managed but we didn't have religious institutions that could do it and so this meant that the people performing the advanced psychological and religious cultivation of the people religion is advanced psychology in this sense had to be the state itself and so many of these institutions and things that you will see in this book come from that problem where they have to solve this now What's interesting about this is because this wasn't overtly what was happening, because there was sort of a a, a suggestion that, for example, the Marxist Soviet Union was an atheist thing. They weren't being sincere in the fact that they were acting in this religious way and controlling people's minds in this way. And so for some reason, it, it, it inverts it very fastly. It becomes a way darker than you would like it to be. It becomes immediately more... Insincere, more dangerous, more evil. I guess you could say. And there's this very common pattern you find throughout this book is that everything that they're s- they're describing symbolically is almost like an inversion of the old God-based Catholic order that most of this much of this replaced. Or I should say Christian because this was Orthodox in the um, in the uh, in the Russian Empire. And so what I'm doing, coming from the Jungian perspective, is I'm going to break it down into the archetypes that you see throughout it. And of course, the first one is this big brother archetype that you're staring at now. And what's fascinating about this, this, this is unbelievable. I'm not even sure if Orwell was planning this. This is why it's so amazing, because the state needs to get into that position where we can monitor everybody to make sure they're consenting. And so the big brother is watch, watch, watching, watching you becomes an inversion of the archetype of God. God is the all seeing eye, like the whole principle behind God is that when you go into your room alone, he still can see you. He has this magic eye where he can watch you. And so the the, the onus is on you to be responsible because there's this metaphysical force with infinite consciousness presence that can see you wherever you go. And if you, you know, say nasty things in the quiet of your room, like curse people or something like that, God will see that. So there's no escaping from that. And Big Brother takes the place of this creature, and the, what's weird is that God is benevolent, and this Big Brother character is the almost like parody of benevolence. He's really a unbelievable. We're not even sure if he's real. That's the first thing, and second of all, he if he is, he's an unbelievable tyrant. He's a representative almost of like of the um of the God of this world. He's he's re, a really good way to understand him as like demiurge of sorts is super interesting so the big brother always watching you is the all-seeing eye which is fascinating and this leads us and i think that's the great archetype to springboard into what's going on here we have this inversion we have this upside down world that he lives in and it is about parodying all the the stable concepts of a normal religion and one of the most amazing ones of this is the the way that language is manipulated. So God, or you could say the Christian God, or the traditional Christian values are all about truth, all about the dignity of language, all about logos. And the Christian story is about fundamentally the, the truth coming into a person and the person refusing to bow. God inside the man or the man God refusing to bow to the corruption of the world, the evil of the world and, and sacrifice his words. He will not sacrifice his words or, or his dignity for the sake of them taking his life or causing him pain or whatnot. And that becomes very relevant um, towards the end when you see the somewhat religious Christian experience that um, our main character has to go through where he gets he gets. He uh, he goes to room one hundred and one, where James is currently. And this parody of language it shows it shows what happens. Solzhenitsyn noticed this as well. Is that when you when you let things get this bad, you spiral into this weird place where all of your words lose meaning, and and suddenly there's this you're living inside a nightmare. And this nightmare is about. It, it's almost like this nightmare is about making fun of you because it's because when you become conscious of it it's it's so it's such a parody it's so ridiculous and it's so stupid that's the most important thing it's 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 fundamentally about making you it's almost like big brother is is satan or maybe a puppet of satan and once he catches you in this prison that he's built it's almost like a mouse trap he he's play, he's like a cat playing with you before he kills you it's hilarious to him and it's your fault as well, because at some point down the line, as Solzhenitsyn noticed, lots of people had to lie to get the, to allow something like this to seep into the Soviet Union. And so he's he, he there is this huge, almost Christian like responsibility. It's like it's your fault. And so it's your fault to get out of it. But when you're in it, there's this it's 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 hilarious. It's as the meme that's going around now is the clown world meme. And I think that's a brilliant way to put it, because bear in mind, George Orwell was writing this as a parody. And this comes with this idea of newspeak and the way that they, the party manipulates language in order to make it suit them. And so I'm going to start with a quote by a famous man called Terence McKenna. He was a member of the psychedelic community. He was a bit wild. He had some things now I don't think he'd agree with, but this is a fantastic, fantastic quote to paint this picture properly. Culture is a plot against the expansion of consciousness. This plot prosecutes its goals through a limiting of language. Language is the battleground over which this fight will take place. And so the way that the party chooses to wage this war on language is by reducing it. And by reducing it, they they choose to cut out everything. They, They choose to take words and cull them so there's less words and then once they've culled the words somewhat once they've got the this limited amount of vocabulary that people can use then, what they start doing is that they start to change the meanings of the words. So, I'll we'll go through both of those things quite quickly. First of all, the culling of the words is super interesting. This is when we get this idea of newspeak. And the, the goal of newspeak, he has it in the annotations, actually, when he brings it up and you read through it, it's this whole theory of languages. The goal of newspeak is to reduce the vocabulary small enough so that people lose this sort of ability to use language as a tool for thinking and use it more as a tool for obeying which is very interesting when you think about it i wonder i wonder would that be possible so he's trying to pull like the party are trying to pull language away from old speak as they call it where you had like someone like shakespeare being like blah 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 emotions passions internal experiences and moving it towards what we could say is essentially this ability to be highly assertive and positive with language so it's like used for saying yes to orders and whatnot and also um used for simple concepts that kind of catch your mind in some sense and one very interesting part of this was george noticed that the reduction of this language would begin with the ability to pack words into double syllable almost like double barrel shotgun words and these are super important to this you hear it all the time you hear face crime thought crime sex crime ingsoc that's that um two syllable bang 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 idea 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 and a lot of people make fun of that in um enjoy the the george orwell thing because they're so it's so catchy it's so brilliant that's the thing about it it's very catchy it's almost like slogan making but if you look in our modern world and i was noticing this you have you have this showing up everywhere fake news tradcon far left alt-right brexit It's all there. It's all that um, destruction of elaborate thoughts for the sake of propaganda thoughts. And this might simply be a consequence of when you have to communicate to a large amount of people, you have that problem where you're going to have to reduce your language down to its simplest form. And so saying elaborate ideas or even elaborate syllables and words is somewhat impractical. And I find that that's that's massive. That's super interesting because that's happening, again, giving those premonitions. And I'm sure um George probably predicted this from looking around him and seeing stuff like Nazi and all that stuff going on. Like that's that's the same concept and he, he's seeing this now. And it seems like this is a thing in human nature. But a more interesting one is the idea of corrupt, or another interesting one is the idea of the corruption of higher ideals, like equality into a pragmatism. So instead of men being equal. You have this if you say the statement in in new Speaker or even in in that new in this new world like all men are equal what you're saying is that they all are the same size or something like that so that word doesn't mean the abstraction that it used to it's almost like the death of the metaphysics and this is super interesting because abstract words and abstract ideas exist almost in like an invisible world above our heads and so this becomes um This becomes the super interesting idea of of how words are suddenly, like that that abstract intellectual space is, is cut away for the sake of the material world, the world that you can see. So words don't really work as metaphors anymore because metaphors are impractical for the party. We don't need metaphors. We need pragmatism. We want to get rid of this sort of world of heaven altogether. And again, it plays into this religious stuff. And so the idea he focuses on is equality, because when you have um, everybody is equal, that's meaning that they're all the same size, and that's actually a ridiculous idea in um, in this. So they they corrupt equality from being a concept that it actually means to being a concept that is somewhat. It's it's very very practical. It's material, but then it goes even further because you have uh, you think about the way we even use equality now. We use equality in a almost compliance sense. Like we say we parody what, for example, the Christian traditional perception of equality was, which is everybody is free to be judged by God equally. That was sort of the true spiritual and then therefore informed the modern understanding of equality. Everybody should be equal before the law. That type of notion. Like they're every everyone is born equal to be judged equal. That is the idea. It's it's not about predefined judgments it's sort of like all right you are what you are and you will be judged accordingly for how you act you are not judged on your failures of being born like whatever the fuck you are like whatever class you're in or whatever and that is something inherent into the christian thing and that was promoted quite well and successfully in that sense and this actually integrated very well into class societies so you were born in a lower class or an upper class but you were still judged. So the classes remain there. That's hierarchy remain there. And then, but you were you were still judged in your deeds in that sense, and that was a really important distinction because it's we have corrupted modern equality to some sense to move away from that idea of it's what you do to being something more in akin with what you deserve. It's like an entitlement or some rights, and it's not that rights should be violated. But think about the imbalance between the responsibility that you being judged in your deeds puts in you compared to the entitlement nowadays, where it's like I am. I am like, you know, you're born into a and you you were born and you think you deserve to rule the world. Like that is the that is the shadow side of democracy. That is something that um you you were born and you are supposed to you, you get this idea that you understand how to run a government and that's that's the leading with your vote and it it brings that sort of arrogance into it. And then it can be manipulated against you because if you start saying maybe certain leaders are better than others or some people are are better than others based on their deeds you can be blocked away from thinking that way by saying you're not being equal and whatnot so equality seems to have been pathologized or it's vulnerable to serious pathology as we said before like in, in the past and uh george in another book animal farm capsulates this brilliantly where the animals are the people and he says all animals are equal but some animals are more equal than others. And a final discussion on language I'll go to briefly here is where he talks about how the party controls history. So that was a famous meme he had where he would say, um, whoever controls the past controls the future. And then we have a reading from the book, of course. In the party's histories, of course, Big Brother figured as a leader and a guardian of the revolution since the various earliest days and blah, 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 blah. Yes, there was no knowing how much of this legend was true. So he's talking about heroes and the past and all that and how much was invented. Winston could not even remember at what date the party itself had come into existence. He did not believe that he had ever heard the word Ingsoc before 1960, but it was possible that in the old speak form, English socialism, that is to say, it had been current earlier. Everything melted into mist. Sometimes, indeed, you could put your finger on a definite lie. It was not true, for example, as was claimed in the party history books, that the party had invented aeroplanes. Winston remembered aeroplanes since his early childhood, but you could prove nothing. There was never any evidence. Just once in his whole life, he had held in his hands unmistakably documentary proof of the falsification of a historical fact. And on that occasion, and then it cuts off he gets interrupted it's showing you the world that he exists in he exists in this world that is largely false largely made up of lies so again it comes into that almost satanic parody of reality where the idea behind religion is that you true god you find reality and you find the truth and religion is not a is not a th- thing that's actively trying to mislead you religion is trying to help you it's trying to show you the way it's trying to show you what's going on and so um they live in this fake history this fox history where the party go back and they corrupt the documents he works on that later and they talk about that later in the book where his job is to go through documents and re-edit stuff and do really creepy crazy stuff and it's it's advanced censorship it's historical censorship to create this energy of a almost like there in the beginning there was the party And there's this modulation of heroes like Julius Caesar and all that to to shape into these party establishing heroes and whatnot. And so that becomes a big theme, a very big theme, and a, a crazy parody theme. And then we have, and this is a very important idea, another psychological idea is the energy of hate and how hate is used in this novel. Create control and how sex is used in that sense. So I'll do a bit of reading from this, but the thing you got to understand is that in this position where you're the psychological rulers, the religion creators of this George Orwell world, you have this problem where you need to keep everybody in line. And so what you do when you need to do that, you you manipulate people's emotions. If you're an advanced, if you if you if you need to understand. What's going on? You would need to look at the population as this single unit and imagine the story you're giving them, just like the Catholics had to think about the dogmatic singular story they were given the Christian world. These people have to imagine a story they're giving them. And this story has to be made up of characters which they can project core or key emotions on. The You could call this the architecture of the mind. And so the every every story needs a villain and every story needs a hero. And so the hero was obviously big brother in the party. And then the villain here becomes a man called Goldstein, which is super interesting because Goldstein was actually the man who established the party. And this is almost like the story in Greek mythology where you have the old order of Cronos who actually defeats an evil order, but over time he becomes stale. And then Zeus, one of his sons, has to kill Cronos. And then Zeus becomes the Olympian gods and, and a good man. But then, of course, over time, Zeus has to be usurped by Prometheus because Zeus is oppressing the humans. And so there is this strange mythological side of it. And again, I'm not even sure if George Orwell was conscious he was doing this, but this is the way this stuff fell into place. And this is based off the Soviet Union. And in many senses, this what we call cult of personality, where they would worship the leader, is that energy of them finding religious experiences the, the the psychology which would usually project be projected onto the religious world is now getting projected onto the party world. The the ideology that they're giving you, and so Goldstein in this one, the the Kronos, the original establisher of the party, is is the devil. And so what they do is they have, and this is in the first chapter. It's a brilliant, brilliant um little bit of bit of writing where they go through the two minutes of hate, where they are riled up and they were they're meant to experience that deep furious emotion of hate and it becomes it's very religious in the way it works out but more importantly is around about that time winston who is a member of the the middle class and so he's not allowed to have sex unless it's for reproduction it's a very conservative it's very we wouldn't say even conservative it's very tyrannical in that sense that it's 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 like puritan without religion in some sense so sex is highly managed which is interesting because sex is then related to this. It's a big, big part of this is the idea of love and romance. Uh, George is trying to bring romance as this savior inside of this book. And it's a very interesting, especially regarding the conclusion. So that's one thing to understand is romance is essential in this dead state. And then um, this begins when Winston notices a beautiful black haired girl. She was a bold looking girl of about 27 with thick, dark hair, a freckled face and a swift, athletic movements. He disliked nearly all women and especially the young and pretty ones. It was always the women and above all the young ones who were the most bigoted adherents of the party, the swallowers of slogans, the amateur spies and nosers out of unorthodoxy. But this particular girl gave him the impression of being more dangerous than most. Once when they passed into the corridor, she had given him a quick sidelong glance which seemed to pierce right into him and for a moment had filled him with a black terror. The idea that even crossed his mind that she might be an agent of the thought police that it was true was very unlikely. She still, he continued to feel a peculiar uneasiness which had fear mixed up in it as well as hostility whenever she was anywhere near him. And so this is um this is setting up a, a very big premise in the book. It's a core feature of the book. But it's it's interesting to note that his hate through whatever game he's been involved in has been manipulated in such a way that, first of all, you're gonna see how it's projected to Goldstein, but interestingly also towards women. And women are notorious for being very, very obedient and submissive to the establishment in some sense. Like you know, the 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 Jungian understanding of um women is that they especially when they have an animus is that they someone get their, their father sits there you can think of evolutionary evolutionarily it would have been in there in a woman's like a, a young girl's interest to be as obedient to her father and first of all her father has to be strong and then if he's strong she has to be as obedient to him as possible because she is vulnerable in comparison to the world and if she makes even a single mistake at uh, uh, one of those young ages she could get landed with a kid for example that's not her hers or even worse like raped or something so women have this energy in them when they're they're in the presence of uh, or when they're raised by a strong person and for example the state is almost always positioned as strong they become very obedient to it because it is something that's in their nature that they have to rely on doing because that's the safe way of doing it and then um, and so they would, have, they would have that pride in them. And of course, young men do this as well. Young men, are like you'll see later that young men are, are well willing to go out and fight and die for the interesting wars that they create. But this, this arouses an, an animosity in, this, um, in Winston, in poor sexless Winston, as he sees this young, proud girl who's beautiful, but he kind of hates her a bit for some reason. But I'm not even sure if he knows why. It's just almost like this hate has been built into him. It's almost like it's a controlling feature that allows them to stop these relationships forming because what is the most powerful relationship you'll see in this book is the the relationship of romance. This is where when Winston starts to experience this things start to break apart. And so uh, it's very important I and mean, it's it's very important. maybe this is just simply a consequence is what's going on, but this this marriageo conjunc that the young calls it this unification of man and woman, the ultimate power couple. The, the core of society in many ways, needs to get eroded somehow. So love is replaced with hate. Again, another upside-down world. The next moment, a hideous grinding screech of some monstrous machine running without oil bursts from the telescreen at the end of the room. As usual, the face of Emmanuel Goldstein, the enemy of the people, was flashed onto the screen. So we have the devil coming up. The little sandy-haired woman gave a squeak of mingled fear and disgust. That's another woman. Goldstein was a renegade and blacksider who, once long ago, had been one of the leading figures of the party, almost on a level with Big Brother himself. And he engaged in counter-revolutionary activities. The programmes of the Two Minutes of Hate varied from day to day, but there was none in which Goldstein was not the, the principal figure. He was the primal traitor, the earliest defiler of the party's purity. All subsequent crimes against the parties, all treacheries, acts of sabotage, heresies, deviations, sprang directly out of his teaching. Somewhere or other, he was still alive, hatching his conspiracies, perhaps somewhere beyond the sea, under the protection of his foreign paymasters. Perhaps even, so it was occasionally rumoured in some hiding place in Oceania itself. So this is this is again that big idea, yes. And then this, yeah. Sorry. So so Goldstein. Then later on, there becomes this mention of the the Brotherhood, the anti the anti state. A day never passed when spies and saboteurs acting under his directions were not unmasked by the Thought Police. He was the commander of a vast shadowy army, an underground network of conspirators dedicated to overthrow the state. The Brotherhood, its name was supposed to be. They were also whispered stories of a terrible book, compendium of all the heresies of which Goldstein was the author, which circulated clandestinely Can- Dyslexia, killing me here. Here and there. It was a book written without a title. People referred to it, if at all, simply as the book. But no one knew of such things, only through vague rumours. Neither the brotherhood nor the book was subject to any ordinary party member who would be if there was a way of avoiding it and so this is important to remember is that you have the regulation of information and you have the taking of simple concepts like goldstein and goldstein is a symbol for a series of ideas and these ideas are everything that's against the party and you have this relic this this object this um totem that goldstein possesses and also we have the brotherhood these are like the the fallen angels of the of this 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 satanic Luciferian figure. Like think about what's going on here. You have Big Brother which represents God, the party which represents heaven, and you have the rebelling Lucifer which represents Goldstein. And Goldstein falls from heaven into um into pandemonium, into Tartarus, into the underworld, into the fallen world. And he takes thirty percent of the angels with him, the brotherhood, and they have this satanic doctrine. And this satanic doctrine contains all the information, the heresies that would that would corrupt you. And this is this is astounding because it, it's so religious and it's it's architecture and it so suits the human mind in that way. Like if if we were to talk like sort of sociopaths here, we could talk about how you could build ideologies because this is the this is the skeleton, this is the architecture of the ideologies. Why this is useful is because it actually gives you a tool with which you can question. This this is literally showing you the map of the shadow, and you can ask about your situation okay this is interesting so here we've we've actually got the the infrastructure of of the the human archetypes um heaven chronos god all these things and then devil um chronos again zeus or or, um, prometheus all these type of things the bad people and uh, prometheus had his magic fire that he stole off um, zeus goldstein has his magic information Can you fill those archetypes with your life? That's the big question. That's the Jungian critique here. That's the true shadow work. Are you able to do this and say, what am I being taught to hate? And that's not to say that what you're being taught to hate is wrong, but it's more that do you understand why? Are you able to steel man that? Are you able to play with these type of things? And that's an interesting way of thinking because that's where your emotions get involved and that's difficult and that's uncomfortable. And that's precisely why you can see you will look through this and you will laugh at it and be like, oh, how do people fall into these traps? But you can't do it to yourself, or it, it's 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 almost like it's weird to do it to yourself. It's scary, but that's why people are trapped in these things. Once you get people locked into an ide- ideology like this, you you have them trapped. You you've cast a magic spell on them and they're trapped forever. And so this is why they do rituals. And again, this is what this is. It's a ritual. The two minutes of hate where they are. Forcing the people to 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 go insane with this hate for for the for Goldstein and so that they can really teach themselves. It's magic essentially, to project that energy onto this figure and therefore all the values he represents. And that's fascinating. There's also this hint later on that Goldstein may in fact be an ally and it is controlled opposition, which is another modern thing you hear about, which is freaky as fuck. um so that I'll explore that later when we're going through the politics of all this. but this this um, immense sexual frustration is interesting, and he kind of it's pathologized into that resentment, and then going through this, these couple of minutes of hate, he's um, they have this moment where they have to just think of all the negative stuff. So it's almost like a confessional box where they're they're um, they're getting catharsis for their their anger, their, their frustrations at the world. So he's sexually frustrated, and it's getting projected onto this woman, and they give them the two men of hate, where they can let that out. They can um, Get catharsis for that. So in this moment where he's he's uh, he's going through it, Winston starts thinking about what he's angry about. Of course, it's the girl. Winston succeeded in transferring his hatred from the face under the screen to the dark-haired girl behind him. Vivid, beautiful hallucinations flashed through his mind. He would flog her to death with a rubber truncheon. He would tie her naked to a stake and shoot her full of arrows like Saint Sebastian. He would ravish her and cut her throat at the moment of climax. Better than before, moreover, he realised why it was that he hated her. He hated her because she was young and pretty and sexless. Because he wanted to go to bed with her and would never do so. Because round her sweet, supple waist, which seemed to ask you to encircle it with your arm, there was only the odious scarlet sash, the aggressive symbol of chastity. And then, this is the picture you see on the screen, the hate rose, rose to a climax. They all went crazy. They're like, brah, big brother, you big dickhead. And then um, it faded, Goldstein faded, and then big brother pops up. And then you, um, last of all comes up this little slogan here, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. And these are just typical paradoxes that you can repeat to the point where they don't make sense anymore. And... <laughs> I like. I, I actually I don't. I haven't prepared this one, but when you think about diversity is our strength, yeah, there's something very very creepy about that when you think about it. Like, what the fuck? That is. I don't know if you realize that now. Oh shit. Oh, they're gonna swoop down and get me now for saying that. Fuck. <laughs> but you you know what I mean. Like there is a uh, there is something creepy about sloganizing because it's like it's like nonsense words. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, moving swiftly along, oh, yes, and then a brief um, perception into the religious energy that the little sandy-haired woman, a different woman, has. So, with a tremendous murmur that sounded like my savior, the sandy-haired woman flung herself forward over the back of the chair in front of her. She extended her arms towards the screen, again religious. Then she buried her face in her hands. It was apparent that she was uttering a prayer. And then they all broke out into a chant. Which again is what you're seeing on this screen. And then that's later, like pretty much straight after that, the closing of that chapter. He um he has he cracks and he, he breaks. Winston does, and he, he has he, th- he think crimes. So he um has finally conceived that he wants to write down these words, down with Big Brother. So you see, long live Big Brother up here, very, very scatteredly. He, he believes down with Big Brother. And he, he's fear he's fearful now. This is when his paranoia starts to set in because he, he knows it's well-known trope that the second you commit a thought crime, because it's God, God knows your thoughts. He can see you. He can see what you're thinking. He knows if you're having evil thoughts. And so now in this inverted satanic world, he has a thought crime and he knows that it's only an inevitable moment when something would happen. Thought crime was another thing that could be concealed forever. You might dodge successfully for a while, even for years. But sooner or later, they were bound to get you. It was always at night. The arrests invariably happened at night. The sudden jerk out of sleep, the rough hand shaking your shoulder, the light glaring in your eyes, the ring of hard faces around the bed. In the vast majority of cases, there was no trial, no report of the arrest. People simply disappeared, always during the night your name was removed from the registers every record of everything you have ever done was wiped out your one-time existence was denied and then forgotten you were abolished annihilated vaporized was the word so yeah creepy enough you get unpersoned i bet you wouldn't like that i bet you wouldn't like that indeed. How are we doing in the chat? How are we going? Jesus, popping in. How are you doing, people? What's going on? What's going on? Big boy, always watching you. Who wrote that? Big boy, always watching. I didn't even think that. That's brilliant. <laughs> Big boy, always watching you. Guys, you figured out what the whole plan was. You figured out the whole plan. Big boy, was coming to get you all. You fools we're watching you all we're gonna get you now right now all these names for your thought crimes what thought crimes oh I see a thought crime already <laughs> oh no never trust health you're no you're done now sir you're done now all <laughs> right so we've got a load of we've got we've we've singled out we've attracted a load of thought crimers here they will they will join james in room 101. And with the and they'll be the big. The big Chad Kangaroo will be there to uh, straighten them out, shall we say, reeducate them for the love and the party. But let's get um, let's get back. Let's see what we got now. Oh, and there's uh the black-haired girl, which becomes f- featureful later. But as you can see, it's erotic about that love getting that love in there, that romance, and you're not allowed to have that anymore. And damn, right, sure, you're gonna have to look at me face for the time being because I've no more pictures. I'm gonna talk briefly about um babies and children because that becomes a profound feature in this In the second chapter when he comes in and he meets a woman with the kids and uh, the kids have been successfully brainwashed and he describes them as horrible I and mean, that's very interesting why because they have lennon who's going to be an interesting one has this problem where uh has this idea where he says give me the youth and i will take over the whole country and then winston walks in with his landlord and then the little boy bellows goldstein and starts making fun of him shooting stuff at him and he they're uncontrolled kids they're horrible he says um and they they are they are difficult to to manage you can't like they're they're pumped up with all this propaganda they're like the perfect example of people who get brainwashed very very fast because they're literally fed this religion and it becomes their worldview and the understanding of their instincts you know the boys desires to just be be crazy is, is 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 amped up they want them to be little tyrants little uh who love the party and all their all the symbols of heroism that they would experience are are given to them in the form of partying and then Goldstein, the devil is, is very strong and all their toys are are fighting out getting that Goldstein. So they're very, very controlled. But this is interesting because this relates to what was going on in Soviet Union as well. Another year or two years they would be watching her. So this is the, the mother who can control them. Another year or two years they would be watching her night and day for symptoms of unorthodoxy. Nearly all children nowadays were horrible. What was worst of all was that by means of such organizations as the spies, they were systematically turned into ungovernable little savages. And yet this produced in them no tendency whatever to rebel against the the discipline of the party. On the contrary, they adored the party and everything connected with it. The songs, the processions, the banners, the hiking, the drilling with dummy rifles, the yelling of slogans, the worship of Big Brother. It was all a sort of glorious game to them. All their ferocity was turned outwards against the enemies of the state, against foreigners, traders, saboteurs, thought criminals. It was almost normal for people over 30 to be frightened of their own children and with good reason. For hardly a week passed, which the Times did not carry a paragraph describing how some eve-dropping little sneak, a child hero was the phrase generally used, had overheard some compromising remark denounced his parents to the thought police. You probably heard Jordan Peterson bring this up because Jordan Peterson is very famous nowadays you know and um, you probably heard him bring it up and say yes the Soviet Union had this scary problem especially in East Germany where two out of every five people were uh, government informers so if you're sitting around dinner and you say something nasty what would happen is you would get uh, you would get tossed into the gulag because your kids would go into school the next day and be like, you oh, know, I heard my mum say this. And they're like, did you? We'll have a word with your Say goodbye to your mum. And so they, the, the nuclear family is ruined. And traditionally, the nuclear family was the the bul, bulwark against the state. And in many senses, sometimes even against the church, when the church was in this position. But the church supported the family as well. So it was it's complex in that one. But this one... The, the the because it's so satanic it's it's, it's so um it's so upside down that the family becomes the biggest problem the most basic is sell, the family and especially the extended family god jesus because that's essentially a, a a political dissident faction so i guess that it's valuable to get people into nuclear families stick them in apartments you know two people and say all right that's good enough they're not they're not connected to like grandparents and all that stuff. They're isolated in some sense, but even that needs to be violated. The kids need to become tools of the state and the school education is one place that, place that they did that. You can even see the hints of that showing up nowadays when you know you know what I'm talking about. so um, naughty stuff like that. and then later on in the novel, which we may cover more later. But you hear someone, O'Brien, a very interesting dude, make it very clear what's going on. So we, he just, he, he lays out this, this new system of power. And so this is something that people project onto all hierarchies. And this is a sort of the the black or the red pill of, of this novel in some sense. Or What I'm trying to present here is this problem where the human mind needs to be regulated somehow by a, a collection of archetypes and architecture of stories. And the large, the, the incredibly difficult idea is that it's not apparent that we can have total freedom from this psychological control. It's not apparent that we can just strip ourselves of all forms of religion, all forms of church and all forms of state. Because in some sense, we do actually need these tools to help us collectively organize. It's in a weird way. I, I don't see how it would be possible otherwise. It would probably be chaos otherwise. And so these things are fundamentally essential in some sense, and maybe the realistic, the psychologically mature thing to do would be to understand that we're going to have to give something our total devotion. And it should be smarter to pick the thing that will use these archetypes to their best advantage, because what we've got here is the utter inversion of the typical archetypal human story you take out. The God, you put Big Brother, you take out the devil and you put Goldstein and you take out all the the, the interesting nuances of a sophisticated religion. You p- replace it with a simple ideology that is almost humiliating you in some sense. And that becomes a very important problem because it, it's difficult to say if that's even you know a set of evil people trying to do that. Maybe it's just the consequence of... Of what happens when god dies as nietzsche says maybe this is the the primitive forming of a new religion of some sorts it's very very hard to know with these things but nonetheless it shows you that these archetypes are being used in their worst way in this novel and maybe these archetypes could be redeemed in some sense maybe we've got to understand how these things can can flex both good and bad and we've got to learn to Choose or or figure out how to do this properly to put to get get the good one in place, and that's a very big question because this is fundamentally what we're getting a lot with people saying that the world is getting unstable and the West is dying and all that, and they're saying, "Oh, what are we going to do?" Well, maybe it is in some sense, or maybe the first step is is this this spiritual war, where people are caught in this idea that um, like you know maybe people are too caught in the idea of libertarianism or something like that. Maybe people are think. And I think George Orwell, to some extent, thinks this as well, that that you can just get away with having this story built on pure um, goodness, on, on total positivity. And it's just like rational enlightenment values and whatnot. And maybe that's not true. Like if we're to give it the run, it does sort of work to some extent, but it hasn't really worked either. It, it, it's we're, we're in this tentative place with this. So this is a big question. Like, what is the what is going to be the operating system? of the world or of the, especially the the European West or the European people. And this is what happens when you fail, when you fail to do that job properly. When you remain ignorant in these questions, you put yourself at massive risk of getting taken over by people who think like this. So this is a huge question, a huge question. And people aren't thinking about it sophisticated enough at all. <clears throat> people are, uh, people are all over the place about it. And um, they, they don't even know what to think about. It. And I think one thing that myself and James are getting, are, are hoping Um, that that people get out of this channel is that going through stuff like Jung and all that will make people more aware of how unbelievably fatalistic a lot of these things are. Like a lot of our modern ideas about psychology are very, very stale, very, very immature, very, very naive. Whereas the idea that we have a set of archetypes that build up our typical mind and we need to fill them correctly is hard because that causes you to question our, our current democratic, liberal values really the best way forward. And like that's this is fundamentally when you challenge those, you're challenging the fundamental ideas of the religion of the current time. You become the Satan that it's never the position you want to be in. But if we don't do it properly, maybe Satan will come and get us. And this is the this is the Satan's words for the party, the German Nazis. And others came very close to us in their methods, but they never had the courage to recognize their own motives. They pretended, perhaps even believed that they had seized power unwillingly and for a limited time and that just around the corner to lay a paradise where human beings would be free and equal. We are not like that. We know that no one ever seizes power with the intention of relinquishing it. Power is not a means, it is an end. One does not establish a dictatorship in order to safeguard a revolution. One makes the revolution in order to establish the dictatorship. The object of persecution is persecution. The object of torture is torture. The object of power is power. And so this brings us to the the fundamental crushing idea of the novel and its religion. And that the state, Satan, the demiurge, the fake liberator, the the Luciferian demon, Satan, offering them the Faustian deal. Um, Take my hand and I will lift you up into a paradise, a new heaven, a heaven better than the old heaven. God's heaven, God in His corrupt ways. Can you take my hand, and I will I will give you all that you need. And then you take His hand, and He lifts you into His world. And then instead of saving you or bringing you to heaven, what happens is He destroys your soul. And by that, and this is fundamentally what happens: He 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 removes the belief that you have any value. He he says that you are subservient to the state; that the state takes precedent over you, and that you have no place within that context except to blindly obey. And it creates the destruction of the individual. And this is the result that you get, this parody world, where you are literally a tool to serve something. Nothing about you matters. And this is where the idea of romance comes in, whereas you can rebel against the state by by engaging in subjective experience to some extent. But this whole system is set up to parody the idea of you having an experience because your experience doesn't matter at all your experience is no value and there may be a simple because this is the the other problem is that hierarchies need to exist in some sense and people need to sacrifice themselves to hierarchies this becomes a very difficult issue but this is why i'm shilling for christianity a bit is because it solved that problem very smartly by saying that the, the the subjective experience of the individual is the key to saving the hierarchy, to stabilizing the hierarchy. That's a pretty big mindfuck. So big old Jay gets a thumbs up for that one too. Um, and that leaves us down to, the um, yeah, what we're gonna talk about a bit here, which is the social order. How did things get this way? So let me just check in with the boyos, see how they're doing, and then we'll run through the scary stuff, more scary stuff and what's going on. Hello, hello France. Hello people. Has anybody said any thought crimes in here? I'm watching. Big boy was watching. (laughs) Questions, but questions. Right, 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 right. That's the job, right? Let's go into the social order in nineteen eighty four, the madness of it. And um we'll do we'll do a few more pictures there. So the thought crime, the bad stuff, the crazy stuff. Boyo crimes. Oops, did I do the wrong one? I've done the wrong one. Give us one second there. Jesus, now stop, would <laughs> you? Yes. Right. So let's talk about social order. And as I said, it's the inversion of the social order. What's going on here? You had um you had uh, the high priests, the nobles, this is the traditional social order, the one that we're all familiar with, the the idea of. The idea of how things should work. And this is something that we're very resistant against nowadays. We're sort of like, oh, social order is bad. Seeing things this way are bad. And so this was the uh, bourgeoisie up at the top. And they had to be taken out. They had to be taken out to create this social order. Big brother. He's the god at the top. And then you have the inner party or the, his angels. And then you have the outer party who where Winston is. And we'll talk about them in a bit. And you know, the proles who were the, the, the block of people who were controlled. And so um, this was the old way it worked, and this was a this was this was a stable hierarchy to some extent. You know, it wasn't perfect, but it's it's fairly arguable that it was better than this and more realistic. Is the problems that came into the Soviet yeah, um, Soviet Revolution, which exactly was this as well. This was exactly what was going on too. Um, this they they created a new hierarchy. They promised the end of all hierarchies, but they created a new hierarchy. So let's talk about that revolution because that's what happened in the um, what happened in the book is in around about 1950s they say some revolution happened the third world war and that's when things went dark that's when all this stuff started to clamp down so it's the implication that in Britain the um, the Soviets got their power and uh, this it's this is explained in the idea of the anthem strong and peaceful wise and brave fighting the fight for the whole world to save we the people will ceaselessly strive to keep our great revolution alive unfurl the banners fight for the dream never before has such glory been seen this is the 1950s revolution similar to the russian revolution and there's an interesting idea embedded in this that is similar to the old boyos here um This is Lenin, I think it was Trotsky who talked about the the never-ending revolution. That could have been Lenin, I'm not sure, actually. And their game was to, their idea was that the the, the communists wanted to take the world. And so they said that we're going to be in a constant state of revolution until the world bends and crushes to our needs. And his theory, the the theory that went into this this is Leninism now, Marxist-Leninism we're talking about. And this is a very important thing to understand because it's, quite relevant to the modern day, um, and especially this his book, his belief was that then in the necessary of a violent overthrow of capitalism through the communist revolution, to be followed by a dictatorship of the proletariat, as the first stage of moving towards communism, the need for a vanguard party to lead the proletariat in an effort, in this effort. And so this is interesting, because they say at the end, there's going to be this utopia where the People will rule in a true democracy. So that's, again, this is parody of equality. And again, it's saying that this thing, this old order is is wrong and it needs to be broken. And then it does this really interesting, funny trick. Again, it's amazing people fall for this, you know, and they fall for this like at the cost of their lives. It's unbelievable what the, the death that they went through. And so in order to do that, you need a vanguard party. So they need a bit of a help. You know, they need to be helped along with a vanguard party. To lead to polarity in this effort so it's it's going to be three stages you're, you're in the current stage of the order and then you move to you have the revolution and then you establish the party and the party sets everything up and then you move on to the true utopia but of course that never comes it's like satan's promise the faustian deal it never comes in the end and we, that that is crazy because then you look at the the old quote before that about power So we have these people who are literally lying. But again, Satan is happy to lie. The the devil, the bad people are happy to lie, which is um, super interesting. And the core idea, and this is one of the creepiest ideas in all of this, is the idea of the liars, the professional liars, the thought police in 1984. And these are based on the Cheka and the NKVD of the Soviet Union. So the second the revolution happened, these these um, Cheka, these NKVD, these thought police, these secret police, these, um, and then the overt revolution and um, the overt uh, purgers, the people who were killing off problems, pretty much. These um, started to target counter revolutionaries, you know, people, members of the the brotherhood, as you'd call them now, as the fallen angels. And so those counter-revolutionaries fell under these categories. Any civil or military servicemen suspected of working for Imperial Russia. Imperial was the old empire. So again, you're targeting the bourgeoisie, who just so happened to be the intellectual elite of the previous order. Families of officers, all clergy, workers or peasants who were under suspicion of not supporting the Soviet state. Any person... Who had private property was valued, whose private property was valued over 10,000 rubles. And this was called a Red Terror. So they they aimed for all of these people up here, the high priests and the nobles and the officials. They had already killed the Tsar. That's a very famous story. They went and they shot him. That was very scary for the Russian people. So they killed him. And then they had their, their overthrow. They killed him. They started to cleanse all these. These are the people who think. These are the people who say, wait a second. Psychological warfare is getting waged on us. They're trying to change this hierarchy for Satan's hierarchy, the the upside down version of this, the bad one. So they kill all those off. So it's it's uniform consent. And then what they do is they take all the people who are asking questions down here and they beat them into submission. And in their place, they establish the ruling class and they establish the managing class. This is the outer party, the new intelligentsia. And then the pros will talk about how that works now in a second. So the secret police um, do this, and this is the Red Terror implemented by Zerzinski on the September 1918. It was described in the Red Army Journal by Krasanya Gazeta. Without mercy, without sparing, we will kill our enemies in scores of hundreds. Let them be thousands. Let them drown themselves in their own blood, for the blood of Lenin and Yuritsky. Let there be floods of blood for the bourgeois, of the bourgeoisie, more blood as much as possible. Lenin's dictum was, it was better to arrest 100 innocent people rather than risk one enemy going free. And this ensured that wholesale indiscriminate arrests became an integral part of the system. It was during the Red Terror that the Cheka, hoping to avoid the bloody aftermath of half-dead victims writhing on the floor, developed a technique for execution known by the German words, a shot to the nape of the neck which caused minimal blood loss instant death and so the checker formed the first slaughterhouse human, human massacres in this sense the victim's head was bent forward the executioner fired slightly downwards at point blank range this had become the standard method used later by NKVD to liquidate Joseph Stalin's purge victims and others Lenin delineated actions against the filers of the decreed Bolshevik removal of orthodox church valuables. They're stealing from the church. We must put down all resistance, which with such brutality, they will not forget it for several decades. The greater the number of representatives of the reactionary clergy and reactionary bourgeoisie, we succeed in exterminating the better. As a result of this letter, um, Orlando Figgs estimates that perhaps 8,000 priests and laymen were executed. The crushing of the revolts in Kronostadt and Tamval resulted in tens of thousands of executions, and it was estimated that the Red Terror ranged from 50,000, which is very conservative, to well over a million. And it is believed, because many of the people, remember, who were f- working in this army were, you know, just proles, it was believed that up to 3 million Russians, 3 million Russians, deserted the Red Army between 1919 and 1920. They were like, what the fuck is this shit? This is crazy. But then on top of that, so it was almost like uh, th- these people jumped into the top and took it. They took the head and they, they infected it with a parasite and then they could control all this. And of course, many pros were like, whoa, whoa, I don't want to be doing, I'm not killing loads of Russians. Like, this is insane so they defected from it. But then you would even saw in World War II, uh, the famous story from Stalingrad where they marched the Russians towards the Germans and then the NKVD would hang behind them and start shooting so that anybody who was who would turn around and try run away would get killed. So it was die if you do, die if you don't. And of course, that's where that interesting problem, and here's some victims of the NKVD in those massacres. It's, Sickly shit, you know. So yeah, nasty stuff altogether. And then the Great Purge is when Stalin came to power, and he was like, "This is this is when you have a big brother." Stalin's almost like Big Brother, and Braunstein was in many ways like Lenin in some sense, or the the people before Stalin in some sense. I think actually, sorry, it was Trotsky, and so um. Stalin came into power, and he purged out all the people who were dissenters to his way of doing Sovietism. So, first of all, and this is this is the the irony, the unbelievable irony of um of how these things work. You have people who are uh, who are uh, generals uh, of these NKVDs, this Cheka, the secret police, this thought police. Uh, Genrik Yagoda was one, and Nikolai Yezov was another, and was. Crazy about these. is the Faustian side of this thing: is that they go into this and they partake in this. And they, I'll read you out, um, Yagoda here. He committed the forced collectivization as one of the main the people mainly responsible for the great for the Holodomor in Ukraine, responsible for the deaths of up to ten million people. This is one man, perhaps, and the deportation of five million Russian and Ukrainian peasants to the Gulags. So this is this is a man who was in on top of this game he was part of the he was one of the heads of the nkvd or the checker and he um he ended up getting killed by them so it came back and it got him yezhov having presided over mass arrests, this is another dude and executions during the great purge yezhov eventually fell from stalin's favor and power he was arrested and confessed to a range of anti-soviet activity later claiming he was tortured into making these confessions he was executed in 1940. We got his just desserts. And so Satan has no friends, no loyalty. He will betray you. Stalin will use you. And then when you're no longer useful, you will be disposed of. And evidential standards in such trials like these were very, very low. A tip-off from an anonymous informer was considered sufficient grounds for an arrest. Use of physical means of persuasion was sanctioned by a special degree of the state, which opened doors to numerous abuses documented in regulations of victims and members of the NKVD. And so, yeah, we have this big question of how, how was this established? How was this how was this order kept in place? One big factor of it, and this is one of uh Winston's main jobs, is that he works in what we call a never he works in the war department in some sense. It's almost like the news. And there's this weird thing where there's this never ending war. And this is where the Goldstein conspiracy theory comes into it. You have this map, you have the Eurasian Union, Russia and Europe. And the People's Federation of East Asia. And I think they follow a religion called obliteration of the self, which is quite interesting. And then you have the Oceana people. So this is England and um, Ireland, obviously Ireland, the ruling states there. And then you have all Ireland's colonies. And then you have this black and white area. And this is the contested area, the disputed area. And there's just constant wars going on there. So what's weird is that it, it, they're suggesting that the reason why there's wars here is because well, what you eventually figure out is that they produce too many resources here. And if they raise the standard of living, then people would start to get complacent and ask questions. They would They would get healthier and ask questions. So what they do is they keep everybody on this sort of tipping over, you know, they they raise the housing prices perhaps and keep everybody tipping over just making it by. So all they can do is work, and they don't have time to, to kind of laze about and, and and start wondering what is the real meaning of equality. And so what would happen is um, they would take all these surplus resources because they're highly productive, highly organized, highly productive states, and they kill off any any population that's unnecessary, and they send them down here. That's another thing they probably do. They send loads of soldiers down here to fight meaningless wars for useless territory desert essentially like if you notice quite ironically it's mostly desert and islands and uh and rainforest and stuff so they would take all that and then they would uh, have these mad fights and burn up the sur- surplus resources and so the implication here is is in a weird way well can you really say that this is an example of three enemies they seem more like three friends in a weird way And that's a very interesting idea because it posts the very weird conundrum, the very weird conundrum that in the modern world, the correct way to take over is not through war. War is very impractical. The correct way to take over is to get yourself up here. And so what's probably going on is that they figured out how to get into the little pyramids in all of these, the, the revolutionaries, whoever they were, and now they've set up these three situations, these three empires, which they own. And what they do is they keep these in constant war as a form of as, as a psyop, essentially a way to keep people busy, a way to keep people distracted from who has power. And so it's, it's unbelievably insane when you think about it. But it, it is that sense of you always have to be at war because you need always need to be distracted. And that is, um, the war is not meant to be won. It's meant to be continuous. And there's another satanic thing. We um. We uh. We we wish to, yes, we wish to keep the wars ever everlasting, so the people are always focused on them. And in the book Goldstein, so the the original writer, in the book, the theory and practice of. Oligarchal collectivism by Emmanuel Goldstein describes the party ideology as oligarchical collectivism that rejects and vilifies every principle for which the socialist movements originally stood. It does so in the name of socialism. What the fuck is that? So they, they come in with this socialism. They say the goal is to, to take the whole world and, and create this great lordy empire. But When they take it, they turn on it because that was never the goal and this implies that goldstein in some sense was was actually woke to this so the big brother might have sent goldstein off somewhere else to create his devil he was like all right you're gonna be our devil so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna kill you we're gonna go against you in some sense but of course you'll, you'll never be found and you'll never die truly and um so it could be a massive controlled opposition thing so it makes this unbelievable parody of just all of human life saying that Every part of the story is made up. And it shows the sophistication of these, these um, possessors in some sense that they've completely figured out how to lead these people. And uh, the way they do this is with four ministries. This is where Winston works. You have the Ministry of Peace concerned with, concerning itself with war. This is some doublespeak right here. The Ministry of Truth with uh, propaganda, with lies. The Ministry of Love with torture. The Ministry of Plenty with starvation. So Plenty is regulating the food, the resources. Ministry of Love is uh, torture, the NKVD. Um, the psy- psychological warfare, people figuring out how to control people's minds and their emotions. Ministry of Truth, exact same thing. That's about information. I think that's where Winston works. Ministry of Peace is like, all right, um, discussing wars, figuring all that stuff out, figuring out the logistics of how to how create these nonsense wars in this n- nowhere land nonsense land and that is um that that is a pretty interesting uh note and so the the hierarchy we'll discuss it about discuss a little bit you've got your big brother at the top the inner party and you got the outer party the outer party is um the big deal the outer party the nomenclature works the state's administrative jobs they are the middle class whose members are allowed no vices other than cigarettes and victory gin These are the citizens who are most spied on via telescreens and surveillance. So they modulate these people most. They don't modulate these people. They modulate these people most. So this is something, now this is a very crazy idea. This is something you really got to think about. The intelligentsia are the people who have the most psychological warfare waged on them. Because these are the people who could figure out what's going on and turn to these people and say, get them fuckers out of there. So what they do is they, the the middle class, the the bulk of the intelligentsia that were, remember they rooted out this middle class, popped themselves in on top of it. And now what they do is they need to just control these. Because if if you are the head and you control the heart and the brain, so you're sort of like this little parasite and you control the brain, you control the body. And so they're very sensitive about that brain. This is why Winston is sexually controlled because too much sex would open his mind up perhaps. worried about stuff like that so what they do is they keep them keep them keep them held in um the the nomenclatura, where was the the soviet bloc and the, the administrative positions government industry agriculture education whose positions were granted only with approval by the party Lenin wrote that appointments were to take the following criteria into account: reliability, political attitude, qualifications, administrative ability. So, this is because, according to history, the middle class is the most dangerous. They are the ones to incite revolution. The one thing party does not want: they live in rundown neighborhoods, use crowded subways as transportations, have poor food and drink, and are denied sex for any other purpose than having children within marriage. They are expected to look at it as duty rather than pleasure party keeps them happy oh yes and then this is a very interesting conclusion that you can bring and this is the position the proletariat, the bottom class have the the under people the proles the workers these are the dictators that this was all done for to bring equality to these people these are the the boots on the ground the soldiers the fighters the the workers the, the the large mass of people So George Orwell said, football, beer, and above all, gambling filled up their horizon of their minds. To keep them in control was not difficult. The party kept them happy and sedates them with alcohol. Gambling, sexual promiscuity. So this is interesting. Prol feed. So this is pornography, fake books. They are not constantly watched by the party. A few agents of the thought police mark down and eliminate any individuals deemed capable of becoming dangerous. The 85%. And so we'll end with the hope. Yes, to keep them in control. Okay, we'll end with the hope in a bit. To keep them in control was not difficult. A few agents of the Thopolis moved, always among them, spreading false rumors and marking down and eliminating a few individuals who were just capable of becoming dangerous. But no attempt was made to indoctrinate them with the ideology of the party. It was not desirable that the proles should have strong political feelings. All that was required of them was a primitive patriotism, which could be appealed to whenever it was necessary to make them accept the longer working hours or, or shorter rations. And even when they became discontented, as they sometimes did, their discontent led nowhere, because being without general ideas, they could only focus on petty, specific grievances. The larger evils invariably escaped to their notice. The great majority of proles did not even have telescreens in their home. Even the civil police interfered with them very little. There was a vast amount of criminality in London, a whole world within a world of thieves, bandits, prostitutes, drug peddlers and racketeers of every description. But since it all happened among the proles themselves, it was of no importance. In all questions of morals, they were allowed to follow their ancestral code. The sexual puritanism of the party was not imposed upon them. Promiscuity went unpunished. Divorce was permitted. For that matter, even religious worship would have been permitted if the proles had shown any sign of needing or wanting it. They were beneath suspicion, as the party slogan put it. Proles and animals are free. And um this is what Winston then writes. If there is hope, wrote Winston, it lies in the proles. If there was hope, it must be it must lie in the proles, because only there in the swarming this disregarded masses, eighty-five percent of the population of Oceania, could the force could have the force to destroy the party ever be generated. It could could the force to destroy the party ever be generated? Party could not be overthrown from within. Its enemies, if it had any enemies, had no way of coming together or even identifying one another. Even if the legendary brotherhood existed as it just probably might, it was inconceivable that its members could ever assemble in large numbers, larger numbers than twos or threes. Rebellion meant a look in the eyes, an inflection of the voice, at the most an occasional whispered word, but the pros, if only they could somehow become conscious of their own strength not need to conspire they needed only to rise up and shake themselves like a horse shaking off flies if they chose they could blow the party to pieces tomorrow morning surely sooner or later it must occur to them to do it and yet it doesn't and this is precisely about the limiting of information, the unbelievable intelligence of if you can control the thinking of the masses with a small faction of people and therefore, you know, all you really need to do is tightly reg- regulate the small faction of people. You can control the masses, and a constitution of that control is, of course, like absolutely destroying the middle class's ability to think for themselves and be free. It's it's the worst being them. They're the true pr- like they're they're well they're the the, the the harshest prisoners. But um, even crazier is that they they. Damn. Oh, yes, they steal their high, higher ideals. So as I said, with that notion of equality, they're trying to pull these things out of abstractions and make the material, pragmatic words reflect the real world. They don't talk about this fancy other world, visions, big thinking and all that. And the pros are ripped apart because they, they can't attach themselves to big ideas, which you could say is the religious theological sphere of things. This is robbed from them. And so the proles can only engage with the real world and this becomes, as they said, that like they would give them a religion if they needed it, but they don't need it. And so, um, so yes, so th- this this becomes this this problem where they're stuck in this dream and this nightmare where they can't they can't get out of it, and that's because they're trapped in a dream. And so, how do you escape from a dream? And it's this weird paradox where the pros could do it if they could wake up or if they could re-dream something new, but they they can't. They, they just don't have that in them. And then um, maybe they do, but it, it's just very hard to see that happening when you've got people who tightly control the information so well. And if the pros can't wake up, and, and then the 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 people who could change the minds, could say the truth, could could, change, could bring in new ideas or something like that and save these people from the satanic world are incapable of doing it because they're so easily controlled. There's so few of them. There's only a couple of thousand, we'll say, and they're tightly watched, and every time they step out of line, bang, this happens. Winston tried to think of O'Brien for whom, or to whom, the diary he was writing was written, but instead he began to think of the things that would happen to him after the thought police took him away. It would not matter if they killed you at once. To be killed was what you expected. But before death, nobody spoke of such things, yet everybody knew of them. Before death, there was the routine of a confession that had to be gone through. The groveling on the floor, the screaming for mercy, the crack of broken bones, the smash of teeth, and the bloody clots of hair. Why do you have to endure it since the end was always the same? Why was it not possible to cut a few weeks for days out of your life. Nobody ever escaped detection. Nobody ever failed to confess. When once you would succumb to thought crime, it was certain that by a given date you would be dead. Why then did that horror which altered nothing have to lie embedded in a future time? And that closes out part one and closes out all of our talk. And the, the wildness of 1984 so people as you can see advanced mind control crazy stuff going on there Um, religious level wars and please tell me i didn't oh please tell me i, I was sharing the right one Damn. yes and uh really crazy stuff intense as hell super interesting and um, i hope you enjoyed so um Let's take some questions, and then we will bounce, my friends. Have we got any questions? If you'd like some questions, drop them in now. Boom, bio alert. Victory Jin. Victory Jin. Question. Is the anti-Chad kangaroo the platypus? No, we haven't really thought about the anti-Chad kangaroo. kangaroos are noble, bouncing creatures would the anti-chad be the platypus i don't know it's funky like he's got style i wouldn't i wouldn't like to disrespect him i wouldn't like to put him down so i'm not too sure my friend i'm not too sure um <laughs> yeah so he's a nice face so i wouldn't want to disrespect him as i said we will We'll have to research the anti-chad i'm afraid i've been too controlled i've been to room 101 myself and like i do not understand the nature of the uh of of the anti Chad that's been kept from me, or maybe I'm just not supposed to say. Who knows? Prepare your boyo juice. That's fucking dead right. <laughs> Jesus is a mushroom. Yeah, this is Terence. Big boyo was watching. I fucking love it, man. It's beast. I love it. <laughs> he's, just all, he's just all. This is just all shit posting. This is great. Obey your wife. <laughs> We've paid off the overlords. Make sure to like lads. So, thank you, Matthew. Dean Gardner. This is a question. Wanting to fight or oppose against an ideology or people trying to bring in its totalitarian government and PC inequality and equality the, and the migration, does this mean that you were also possessed by an idea? Yeah, th- that was the sort of fatalism I was trying to lead in in the middle of that. You know, like it's it's a there is this inevitability i feel where there there will have to be an intellectual architecture of some sort and the question is well what should that be if, you, if you're not conscious of it this is this sort of young in in me coming out if you're not conscious of what you do believe you're vulnerable to being 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 brainwashed by something in some sense might be a tool of the memes as they say so um Maybe it's more about saying, well, which ideas would I like to be possessed by? That's sort of what, what I, like, I'm not sure on this. This is very advanced stuff, but I'm just trying to think about what's the correct way to look at all this, you know? And I think that would be the way. It'd be like, okay, we, we will have to accept a hierarchy of some sort, a, a way of seeing the world of some sort. What should that way be? And I guess that's what people say when they say the spiritual war. And we've been working a lot, um, myself and James, and, and talking about mad stuff about uh, what might work. What, what would be the right thing? What would be the, the, the right place to be in? And I wonder if you could just get an idea in place, a, the correct way of seeing things. I just It's simply a story. Like, that's a very big idea. What if it was just a story? And if you get the correct story out there, uh, correctly told with a sophisticated architecture, would it be so strong that it would solve all these problems? And that, that's, that's a fundamentally, like, world-changing spiritual level thing to say, I wonder is that possible? And this is what we're sort of eking through, like, is that the place where it could be? Maybe we will be presented with this story at some point. Maybe we've already got it. Like, uh, this is the Christian question. Like, maybe Christianity was it, or or maybe it was a paganism of some, like, who knows? Who really knows? But um, it's, it's important about thinking about all these things. And I guess in this way, you have that postmodern conundrum, but the solution is actually accepting one and understanding fatalistically that it's not postmodern in the sense that none of them are right fundamentally one of them is better than the other as we said the george orwell one is a very bad one so give us a soy pill <laughs> take the gaelic pill that's right the green pill question while we are contending with 1984 a big issue arises with the idea of totalitarianism you claim that this book is prophetic yet the world does not look like 1984 rather Ah, yes. Well, yeah, it's interesting. And um, I think about this. I think the good juxtaposition is Brave New World, where people are controlled with pleasure. Whereas 1984, people are controlled with fear. It makes you wonder that perhaps in order to establish the party in a more peaceful way or a more subtle way or a more final, final way, maybe the Soviet revolution was too unstable. Maybe the correct way to do it would be to brainwash people with pleasure, like in Brave New World, which you can see a lot more of now. And then once that has been achieved, smack down the big brother government on top of them. So it's, it's a demoralization. Like, look at Yuri Beznamov and look what he says about it. He says, that we'll demoralize you first. So we actually, this is the cultural Marxism idea. It's not, about a, it's not about a harsh, fast revolution. It's about a slow, careful bending of the soul and then establishing of a new hierarchy just fucking crazy like it's so it's so crazy that stuff is true it's like living inside a novel like it's so it's so mad do you personally believe that people will not take power with the not take on power with the aim of relinquishing it? if so would you make the life of roman cincinnatus yeah see that's it there are people out there who would um uh, he's the farmer isn't he there are people out there who would have a good attitude towards this stuff like, you know, there there are people out there who can lead. There is such thing as good rulers. The, the, what's so weird now, this is another archetype thing, is that we have this concept solely of the tyrant king. We only see the king in the light of the the dark king. We don't see the benevolent king, which is weird, isn't it? And that, that just that flips with the idea of the, the savior mother nature, where she is the the thing we... Mu- and she's almost representative of, like, systems and stuff. And she's the thing we must honor. And she's good. But we don't see the dark side of nature, which is where we deny her desire for strength and brutality and even her untamedness. Oh, it's the window, my man. It's the window. Come tea, Jojo. Can we get a boy do- jo- dojo Yeah, fuck yeah. We'll make you all... Make his own master samurais in the image of um, James P. McMurphy. <laughs> Showing the Chinese taking control of Africa. Um, question: Here we go. What do you think of astral projection of gas? All right. Oh, we'll I will hit off that now. Dystopian works such as 1994 brave, brave New World. Question: If you have read Huxley's book Island, and I sense you have being the erudite, I think, of the divine knowing McKenna's work. How do you feel about the utopian response to these dystopian works, such as I've never read The Island, although I've I've heard about it, but I don't know it well enough, my friend. Um Mr. Castles. How do you feel about the adage information wants to be free and the juxtaposition with the ideas in 1994? <laughs> Can Big Brother truly rule over us in an information age, or is there a new way to control the populace? See, I don't think you can. Obviously, the truth always wins in the end. Like It's just impossible to to completely smash the truth. But if you can control how many people get in touch with the truth, then it's a lot easier to rule. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Like, it's it's almost like you can give people as much freedom as they want, as long as they're 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 free inside the certain playpen. And that's that's the idea, it's like, all right, like the pros, for example, are very free, but only because they're easy to manage. And so maybe something like the internet is like, here's a a crazy thought, but maybe it is actually a playpen that, that you're allowed to exist in, but it's not but like you can see the way the slow creep of censorship is coming in like what what if what if that does spiral into something dark and there's no adults up there making good decisions and they allow it to just spiral into insanity where you're only allowed to say certain things off that and like the vast majority of people will be on that anyway so there there would be would be dissenters there would be people figuring stuff out but would it be strong enough to take over the whole thing who knows and it's not like it's not like the people doing this really have figured it out. Like they're learning as they're learning as they're going on. Yeah, exactly. China. Like these people are learning as they're going on. There's good argument to say that the French Revolution was the first attempt to pull this off and it failed. Ish. And then um the Soviet revolution was the second attempt. And that was even harsher and it failed a bit. And then our right, right, sweet. What we gotta do is now we've got to try again. And and each successive time is getting more advanced and more crazy, but it's working. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe that's the apocalypse. Jesus fucking Christ, guys. Like, they're going to literally walk in this room right now and drag me off. They'll be like, no more boyos. Boyos, boyos are banned. Ta- boyos are talk crime. What do you think of astral projection? I am not well versed in that, my friend. I do like a bit of dream reading because <clears throat> it relates to this. Like, uh, the the idea of dream reading always fascinated me because if you were trapped in a soviet state like this or a, a george orwellian state like solzhenitsyn was and you only had your mind that's all you had and you could only use that in order to figure out what's going on what's right what's wrong what's happening you didn't have information like jordan's just saying would you be able to somehow look inside your head and figure stuff out would you be able to do it solely solipsistically would you have that much power are we really dependent on our information because if we are, that means we're totally able to be controllers. There's something in us that can figure it out. And my understanding was the archetypes of your friend. If you can figure out the archetypes in that sense, if you can figure out, okay, there's an architecture to my mind and there's a slot where you have to play Satan and a slot where you have to place God. If you could figure that basic principle out, would you then be able to do that little critique and ask yourself, is this... Satan that I'm getting presented really Satan, and is this God I'm getting presented really the right God, the, the correct way I should see God, and, you know, see all the shapes that you're getting presented in terms of ideas, and I think that's actually true, I think anybody could do that, and the best way to do that would be going to your dreams and see what they turn up, it's almost like your head has this ability to give you the information you need. It's got this this built into it in some sense, and it might be one of our greatest assets if this stuff ever does crank down. That you could just go inside your dream world to some extent, pull out all the ideas that are going on, and uh, ask the real questions. So, so, so who knows? Yeah, yeah, because the dreams would give you the information you need. Because that's 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 what I sort of mean is that there's an anomaly there. What if um if in an information tyrannical state where you can't get any information you can still get this weird information that comes out of your mind. Do you know what I mean? And that's very weird because they can't change your dreams. They can't destroy your dreams. That's the, like, they'll have to destroy something about your brain to do that. And maybe that would happen, that would be insane, but they can't destroy your dreams, which is which is crazy because the dreams do present novel information in, in an unbelievably strange way. They They bring out something, the back of your head, can tell you things that you need to know that you didn't know, which is beyond mind-blowing. How does that work? So you have a part of your head that you call you. And when you go to sleep, this other part of you, or this bigger part of you, informs you. And so this is interesting because if people took away the entire outside world off you, it'd be very disadvantageous. But would you be able to somehow use this to get an edge somehow. So I don't think, I think that's a great testament to the human spirit. There's something unbelievably interesting about what we are in that sense. And that's not the correct answer to astral projection, but that's what I know. I don't really know astral projection too well. But if you want to learn more, I think pop into the bio discord, pop it down, it should be in the link in the description. I'm pretty sure there's a few people talking about astral projection. Mr. Castle is maybe one. You may enjoy that. Last question for me, what do you encounter very When you encounter very abstract and conceptual things in dreams, how should you interpret them? Dreams are more about bouncing off your instincts, man. They they, they teach you that way. They teach you how to to understand your instincts. So if you get an equation and you get this instinct that it means something else, that's usually right. you got to go with your, your instinct in those things it's a, it's a, it's a very unified way of thinking that's the way to think about it it's not just pure rationality it's often a, a number will have a this you know have the balls underneath it where it's, there's this feeling underneath it and then an image that goes with that and that's a very unified way of thinking image um, idea and feeling all unified as one so um when you get the equation yeah, it's it's very much about thinking about it that way and if you get too obsessed with meanings it'll it'll screw you up a bit My friends, I'm going to bounce. Thank you for uh, popping in. I hope you all enjoyed. And that was a great one. A very interesting story. And we shall be back next week. Talk to you later, people. Bye-bye.